Would you pray with me this morning? Father, indeed, there is no name like the name of your Son as it rolls off our lips as we think about and sing to Jesus. And Father, we know that there is power indeed in the name of Jesus, that at his name every knee should bow, at his name every tongue should confess, that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Father, we look forward to that day in which every knee shall bow one day, but Father, I pray that today that our knees would bow, and that because of who you are and what you have done in your Son, I pray that we would let go of everything else that we would seek to uh, find satisfaction, significance, or status, or security in. And I pray that we would cling tightly to you. Father, I pray that in these moments ahead, as we open your word, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that where encouragement is needed in our lives today, I pray that you would bring encouragement. Where conviction is needed in our lives today, that you would bring conviction. And I pray, God, that both of those would happen in a way that is incredibly compassionate as an extension of your love for us. And so we offer this time to you as we open your word together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can grab a seat, and if you've got a Bible, you can open to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen for you as we read it together momentarily. But we've been working our way through the book of James together over the course of the last several months, just text by text, uh, paragraph by paragraph, taking a look at what God has to say to us through His Word. And in James chapter 4, uh, we'll begin in verse 1 and we'll read down through verse 10 together this morning. The text reads as follows, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you, James says. Now, I don't know about you, but if you have young children in the home or have ever had young children in the home, you could probably relate to our experience yesterday. Uh, we were kind of cooped up indoors despite the beautiful weather because of all the stuff that you can hear in my voice right now um, with allergies and a head cold and our kids were coughing and hacking and wheezing. Our daughter taking breathing treatments like every four hours on the clock trying to be able to breathe without hacking up our entire um, respiratory system. And so we were inside the house and our kids were in their, in their rooms and they were playing together initially and then against each other eventually. Um, you know how kind of that happens. And so our kids are up there and they're arguing and they're fighting and they're all of a sudden Every like three seconds, there's this, no, 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 bellowing through the walls of our home. And so there, there's a moment when those things begin to happen like that in, in my house, at least in my mind, where I begin to daydream a little bit, right? And you begin to think about 
what would it be like to be in a place, like on a beach somewhere, where there's no one screaming at each other, where there's no one fighting over a particular toy that the other one wants or desires? What would it be like to be in a place where there's not that constant bickering and quarreling and that fighting taking place because somebody's not getting what they want, when they want it, from whom they want it from? Right? So I daydream for a moment about what it would be like to have our kids just playing quietly together. Is, 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 that, is that too much to ask? Right? What would it be like to have them deferring to one another? Oh, you would like this toy? Sure, here you go. Here's the toy because I don't need it right now. I'm not really playing with it. But here, you, you can play with it for a moment. And then whenever you're done with it, I'll, I'll play with it again. What would it be like to have children actually having a conversation with each other about the ins and outs and various circumstances that they find themselves in as opposed to erupting in, no, this blood-curdling scream that resonates not only through the walls but also in my head and my heart as well. What would it be like? Because if you've got kids in the home, if you've ever had kids in the home, you know that it's not always very rosy. They begin to argue and bicker and fight over who's got what and who doesn't have what, right? You can see it not only with your kids, but other people's kids. And that's always the funnest thing to watch, right? Because it's not your kids who are fighting over that stuff anymore. It's somebody else's. But when I think about step back, when we, as adults, when we step back and we look at that environment, we see that. We see our kids or someone else's kids quarreling and fighting and arguing over who has what and who doesn't have the other, we tend to think to ourselves, this is so immature. What, are they, are they going to eventually grow out of this one day? But see, here's the problem is that we don't. <laughs> we don't. We just bicker and fight and quarrel over different stuff whenever we become adults, right? It becomes something different because we might look at the, the quarreling that takes place in a, between a seven and a four-year-old that I've got in my home right now. And the quarreling and the bickering that takes place to, with them comes from the exact same root that the quarreling and bickering and fighting that takes place between my wife and I on occasion. I know that's a shocker, right? But yes, we do have those kinds of discussions. Just like you do as well. But it comes from the same root and James drills down to the root for us in this text. He gets down underneath what's going on on the surface. And he says, here's what's driving all of the quarrels and all of the fights. Here's what's driving them at a personal scale and at a global scale, at a national level, at an individual level. In churches and in homes, James says, this is the root cause of all the quarreling and fighting that exists on the face of the earth. And he drives at it in this particular text that we find ourselves in this morning. You know, and there's, unfortunately, within the church, we might think, well, the church is a little bit different, right? There, people don't argue in the church. People don't fight in the church. There's no quarrels in the church. But unfortunately, because the church is filled with people whose hearts are still inclined toward the flesh and still inclined toward sin, absolutely churches are filled with quarrels at times and bickering, and arguments, and fighting. In fact, one Jewish philosopher, as he stepped back and he looked at what was going on in the churches that he had uh, the ability to observe in the 17th century, a guy named Spinoza, he said this with regards to the church. He said, I've often wondered that persons who make boasts 
of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous, or in other words, hostile and bitter animosity and display toward one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. In other words, you want to recognize Christians, he says? This is my criteria for recognizing them. They fight with each other a lot. They quarrel with each other a lot. Not the love and the joy and the faith and the temperance and the compassion that they profess to believe because of what flows out of who Jesus is and what he's done. But rather, if you want to see, you want to see Christians, you look at them fighting over something. This is kind of how you recognize them because they're always in a dispute with one another. And while there is some truth to that because the church is filled with sinners, I think what James calls us to here is a standard that transcends what we're capable of accomplishing in our natural selves. Because James drives at the root of it. And I want you to see what's underneath all of our animosity. Because our problem really isn't the quarrel that we might find ourselves in with our spouse, is it? The problem really isn't the quarrel that we might find ourselves in with our kids because of the way that they're behaving. The problem really isn't the quarrel that we might find ourselves in with the person who's in our life group or the person who sits across the the room from us at church now because we had this kind of falling out. The problem isn't. That issue, the problem is underneath that issue. Because James says, what lies underneath all of our animosity, he says, is adultery. That's what he calls it. James says, what lies underneath all of our animosity is adultery. If you look in verses 1 through 3 of the text that we just read this morning, James says that the source of our quarrels and fights are untamed desires of the heart that boil over into our lives and into our conversations and to the relational context in which we find ourselves. Whether that be in the home, or whether that be in the workplace, whether that be between you and your spouse, between you and your kids, between someone else in the church. Ultimately, what's at the heart of all of the quarreling and all of the fights and all of the disputes, he says, are what's, is what's going on in the heart, the desires of the heart that are untamed. And they boil over into life. In fact, in verse 2, James says it this way. Listen to what he says. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James says, what lies underneath the quarreling, what lies underneath the fights, what lies underneath the disputes are desires. Now, the word that James uses there, typically we think of that in a negative way, right? We think of somebody who wants things that are really, really bad, right? They want, they want power and authority and control, or they are heading down a path that the world would say, even the world would look at and go, man, that's really destructive, the things that you're doing or the things that you're desiring. But the word that James uses here to describe the kind of desires that lie underneath all of our disputes is a word that's in the Greek text, it's, it's the, what, Paul, or what James uses is the word epithumio. And that word thumio means desire and you attach the word epi to it. We've talked about this before. You attach the word epi to it and it means over or inordinate desire. And so what James has in mind here is not like a desire to go off the deep end in drugs and all kind of sexual immorality. He says that's not those desires necessarily that's bringing all, about all these disputes. But what's bringing about the disputes in the life of the folks that James is writing to and in our lives oftentimes as well is not a desire for bad things, but an over-desire, inordinate desire even for good things, even for healthy things. James says that there is the root of, problem for all of us 
is that you desire and you don't have. And so you, you, he says literally you kill. And I think he's not talking about necessarily you pick up a knife and you slay someone. You drive it through their heart. Or you, you pick up a gun and you shoot someone and you blow out their brains. That's not what James is talking about. I don't think. I think what he's talking about is going back to what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you've heard that it was said, right? That not to murder someone, but I tell you that if you harbor what? Anger in your heart toward that person, you've as good as run a knife through their chest. And James says, you, you desire, there's this over-desire even for good things that causes all kinds of destruction and disruption and disputes in your life. But James doesn't stop there. He doesn't say it just happens to, do, it happens to be that these desires, these over-desires are what's driving us. But this over-desire, he says, taking good things and making them to ultimate things, right? It's a good thing to have a home, isn't it? A place that you can lay your head at night, have a roof over your head where you get, stay warm in the winter and cool in the summer. And to have shingles that bead water off onto the ground and not into, uh, onto your head as you try and sleep at night and rain comes through. It's a great thing to have a home, James says. But if you over-desire for a particular kind of home, James says there's, you're, you're heading down a path there. It's not a bad thing to desire a spouse, but an over-desire for a spouse. For those of you who are single in the room this morning, an over-desire for a spouse, James says. Listen, that can lead to all kinds of cutting of corners in your life. And things that used to be non-negotiables now become negotiables because you want it so badly. You want somebody's company so desperately. See, it's an over-desire of even the good things, James says. But he says what lies underneath those and he gives us the hint in verse 3 here because he says what lies underneath those is what we're, as we're pursuing those things, he says you have not because you ask not. He says, but when you do ask, he says you ask with the wrong motives. So that you can spend what you get on yourself, right? So, ah, it, it comes to, to light here now, James says. Here's the issue that's underneath all of your other issues, Here's the adultery that's underneath all of your animosity is that essentially you're wanting to not necessarily love and worship and honor and serve Jesus with the gifts that he provides, but you want the gifts and not necessarily the giver. If the giver would just give the gifts and the giver would stay out of your business, then you would be satisfied. That would make you really happy. And James says, there is the root and that's why in verse 4 he goes on to say, in our English translations it says, you adulterous people. You adulterous people. Now, if you read the Greek, it literally, it's hard on the translators because they take one Greek word and make it into three. And here's why. Because literally what the Greek says is James very emphatically saying, adulteresses. So he's calling every person in the church an adulteress. He's speaking of them in very feminine terms. Now, what, what does James mean by that? He doesn't mean, okay, because we look at it and we go, well, is, man, must have had a real problem with adultery in the early church, right? He's saying, all you adulterous people, all of you are adulterous, all of you are cheating on your spouses. You've got to quit that. But that's not what James is saying. It's not what he's saying at all, necessarily. Because when he says, you adulteresses, he is drawing on a long history of language whereby the prophets in the Old Testament spoke of God's people as God's bride. 
that God was their husband and the, the, God's people, the, his covenant community, Israel, and in the New Testament, the church, they were his bride, his beloved, the one that he had set his affection upon, the one that he had pledged himself to. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll see it in Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 6. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Through Isaiah, God calls Israel his wife, his beloved. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. When God looks at Israel and how she has responded to God's loving advances, he says, Israel, basically what you've done is you've committed adultery on me. You've been treacherous and you've run off with other lovers. You've set your heart and affections upon someone and something else other than me. Even though I've pledged myself to you and given my all to you. When you read in the Old Testament, the entire book of Hosea, God says, Hosea, I want you to go take a wife who's going to be unfaithful to you. Her name's Gomer. And he tells Hosea, go take this wife. And Hosea's going, why would I take a wife who would be unfaithful to me? And God says, because then you will know exactly how I feel. Because I've pledged myself to a wife who has been absolutely unfaithful. And has run around with everyone, everywhere, and the whole world knows it. And so when James says, you adulteresses, he's not calling everyone in the, in the church a woman. And he's not saying, you've got a massive issue with adultery in the church, even though he might say that in our day and time. What he is saying is he's saying you, because what you're aspiring to, you're basically wanting to use God to get what your heart really wants. And so God becomes a stepping stone. He becomes a means to an end as opposed to the end in and of himself for you. And so James says, you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives to spend what you want on your own passions, not to bring glory to God, but for your own pleasures, for your own sinful purposes. And James says, that makes you and I an adulterer. Someone who's turned our back upon God. Someone who wants to leverage God to make us, you know, uh, 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 better at our hobbies. Right? Listen, I've been a runner all of my life. Right? But I'm not going to take Philippians and go, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and go, I can go run a sub two hour marathon because Jesus is going to make me able to run that marathon for my glory and for my honor. So people would look at me and go, man, that dude is really fast. Right? For my glory and my honor. Or I enjoy fishing. Right? I go out on the lake every time around this time of the year right? because I'm searching for something elusive. It's a 10-pound fish floating in that water somewhere down there. And I'm looking for him. Why? So I can post pictures all over. And God, to God be the glory, right? Because I caught that 10-pound fish in the lake. So I want to leverage God so that I can get glory through my hobbies. Or I want to leverage God so that I can receive glory, so that I can receive honor through my vocation, Right? 
so that everyone in my field of work would look at me and go, that dude is all together. That dude's having ministry success like we hadn't seen. Or whatever field of vocation you might find yourself in. For my glory. But I'm going to leverage God. I'm going to be faithful to God. So God now owes me this platform. James says, why are you asking for what you're asking for? Is it for your own passions? Is it for your own glory? Is it so people will look at you and go, that dude is so good. Or she is incredible at what she does. Or would they be looking Are you asking so that God would receive the glory in your life? You see, what James says to us is that there's nothing wrong with having a hobby. There's nothing wrong with having a job. Nothing wrong with having a spouse. Nothing wrong with having kids. But but, but there is something fundamentally wrong with those things having us. Having a hold of us. Having a grip on our hearts. Insofar that you can't live without it. In so far that you order your life around gaining it or keeping it, in so far as you're willing to sacrifice anything for it. There's something that you can't live without, and something that you're ordering your life around to gain or keep, or something that you're willing to sacrifice and leverage everything that you have for. James says that's what you're worshiping. No matter where you spend an hour on Sunday morning, that's what you're worshiping with your life. And James says, when you don't get it, what happens? It's like a volcano erupts. And there's all kinds of disputes. And there's all kinds of quarrels. And all kinds of fights. James says, what lies underneath all of our animosity is essentially an adultery. Our main problem is not the horizontal issues that we have with other people. Our main problem is a vertical issue. That really we're seeking our security or our satisfaction or our status or our significance in something or someone other than God. So we sang the song earlier of of all else I'm letting go and running to your arms. But unfortunately, some of us may be running to his arms but we're still holding on to everything else and we're hoping that whenever we get into his arms he's going to make all that stuff that we really want ours. That's what James says our issue is. So what does he say the prescription is for it? Here's what he says the prescription is for it in our lives. Listen, listen to what he says. If you want to navigate these horizontal quarrels, James says, you've got you've, you've to repent vertically. There's a vertical dimension to this, that unless you repent vertically, you will continue to blow up relationships horizontally. And James tells us two things. He gives us two commands in the text. First of all, he says, submit. He says, we must submit to God. Now, there's lots of metaphors in the Bible to describe our relationship with God, but here James is drawing on the husband and wife, the groom and the bride metaphor. And let me ask you this, whenever you love someone, whenever you are are in love with someone and you're committed to someone, you've entered into covenant with someone, and you've exchanged vows with someone, ultimately, ultimately you're aiming for that person, uh, you're, you're, you're submitting yourself to that person, not necessarily out of duty, 
But when you love someone, you're submitting yourself to their, what's going to bring them pleasure out of delight. Out of delight. It, it brings you joy, right? To take your spouse out to their favorite restaurant on your anniversary and to celebrate together. It brings you joy to save up for that vacation that you have, might have always dreamed about taking together and to that particular destination that you've always wanted to visit. It brings you joy to do those small things around the home that would demonstrate and communicate love and affection to that person. So, if, man, the primary way they understand love is acts of service. You're, you're, you're like doing the dishes and you're folding laundry and you're mopping the floors and you're doing those things. Why? Out of duty? No, because you know it's communicating love and it brings you delight to bring them pleasure. And so when James says submit to God in verse 7, he's not saying, listen, if you only think of God as king, and God is king, but if you only think of him as king and you're going to bow your knee to him, no matter what he asks of you, out of duty, that will not be a, a relationship of love and affection. That will be a relationship of duty-bound obligation. But if God is not only king, but he's also your husband, church, if he's also your husband, then doesn't it bring you pleasure? Doesn't, it, don't you, doesn't your heart delight to bring pleasure to the one whom you love and the one whom has pledged their love to you? That's the way covenant's supposed to work anyway. And so James says the first step to putting aside these other lovers in our lives is to submit ourselves to God and to aim to love him and adore him and give him all of our affections and allegiance and all of our loyalty and love. Not just duty-bound obligation, bowing the knee before God who is king. Yes, that is true, but it is also true that he's a husband who has given his, pledged his life to you. And James says, it should bring you joy to submit to him. But the second thing that James says here, not only do we submit to God in obedience, but we also repent. We turn away from those other lovers and we turn toward him. The language that he uses in verses 8 to 10, James basically commands us, he says, to cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. So what James says, listen, here's what you've got to do. It, it, it can't be just a sheer act of the will, right? If, that was, if it was just a sheer act of the will, he would say, cleanse your hands, start doing something different. But he also says, purify your hearts. He moves beyond action to the, dis to the disposition, to what's going on underneath. He says, cleanse your hands, yes. Begin to change the way that re you relate to everything else in the world under as you submit to God because it's bringing you joy to submit to him because you're delighting to submit to him. So you change the way you interact with everything and everyone else in the world that's around you. Because you're aiming to submit yourself to his will and his ways and not leverage him to accomplish your will in the way that you want to get there. But you're bringing him joy. So yes, you change the hands, but it's also got to be a, a purging or a purification of the heart. James says to where your dispositions begin to change. So James says you've got to submit and you've got to Repent. The language that he uses of weeping and mourning and wailing and letting your laughter turn to gloom. It's all language that's very similar to Old Testament language in which God's prophets showed up and they said to God's people, turn away from your other lovers and turn back to the one who has pledged himself to you. It's all language of repentance. 
There's got to be a continual repentance in our lives as we submit to God, bringing him joy, turning away from other lovers, pledging our allegiance and affection, love and loyalty to him. James says if you really want to get at what's causing, uh, at the bottom of what's causing all the quarrels and the fights and animosity and hatred in your home, in your church, in your office, he says you've got to deal with this vertical dimension by submitting to God to bring him pleasure as you obey him and by turning from other lovers towards him. And the only thing, and I'll close with this this morning, the only thing that's powerful enough to move your heart to do that, James tells us in verse five, he tells us, listen to what he says. In verse five, he says, or do you suppose that the scripture Um, that is to no purpose the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. James says if you want to submit to God out of love and and loyalty and you want to turn away from other lovers and give him your allegiance and affection, he says you've got to see that your husband yearns jealously for you. You've got a jealous husband. And not a jealous husband in a negative connotation, but a jealous husband in the most positive connotation you can possibly imagine because he wants your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. He wants the entirety of your being to be offered up to him as he has given himself to you. James says he yearns jealously for the spirit he's made to dwell within you. And there are some who think that that's James is referring to the spirit that he breathed into our first parents whenever he created them out of the dust of the ground in the, in the garden. And there are some who think that James is referring to the Holy Spirit who comes as a down payment of our inheritance that one day will be fully and finally redeemed. But either way, whether through creation or redemption, God says the spirit he has placed within us, because of that, he lays claim on our lives. And he says, I want you. I want all of you. I want every part of you. I want you to offer up to me your heart and your affections, your mind and your intellect and how you think. I want you to offer up to me your hands and your strength and what you do. I want everything. I want everything. In the same way that when you stand before your husband or your wife on that day and you're dressed in white and he's in that tux and you're both looking really good and you exchange vows before your friends and family and before God, you're saying, I'm giving everything to you and I'm giving everything to you. God says, that's what I want. I don't want just a Sunday morning head nod. But I want the entirety of your life. I want everything. And I yearn, James says, he yearns jealously for us. So that we would not be the kind of people who say, like, wouldn't it be totally offensive if you just went home tomorrow and said to your husband or to your wife and said, Hey, could you invite your friend over for dinner? Because that's really who I want to spend time with. That's who really kind of makes me feel good about myself. That's who really makes me feel real satisfied because every time I'm around them, not necessarily around you, but around them, but you're my leverage to get to them, so would you invite them over? James says, if you're that kind of a person in relationship to God saying, God, I don't really necessarily need you or want you, but I want you so I can get this. 
James says what you've got to see is that your husband who has pledged himself to you yearns jealously for all of you, for every part of you. In fact, he yearns so jealously for every part of you. He's so jealous for you, for your affection, for your intimacy, for your attention. He is so jealous for you that he did not withhold, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he didn't withhold his son, his only son, but he gave him up for us. That's how jealous he is for you, that he would pledge his love to you by giving his son in your place. So that your son would be treated as the adulteress, so that we could be received as a faithful, loving spouse. In fact, he's so jealous for your love and your loyalty that he delivered his son, his only son, up to be crucified at the hands of lawless men, as Peter says at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He was cast out so that you might be brought in. Peter says, Paul says, the whole Bible says, because he is so jealous for your affection and so jealous for your attention, so jealous for your love and so jealous for your loyalty. So jealous for your allegiance and the intimacy that he wants to share with you. And you go, but I can never offer all of myself to him. I'm still so weak and fragile. And yes, you are. And that's why in verse 6, James says, God yearns for you jealously. He wants every part of you. But in verse 6, he says, but he, he gives more grace. In other words, you can't give yourself to him in the way that you should give yourself to him. And so he's going to enable you to give yourself to him in the way that you should give yourself to him. That's how jealous he is for you. That he knew you couldn't give yourself to him in the way that you should. And so by his grace, he enables you to do so. That's why the scripture says, he says, God opposes the crowd but gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 10 he says, humble yourselves to be recipients of that grace. Don't think you can do it on your own because when you try you will fail and fall and falter utterly on your face. But if you will come to God and say, God, I see that you want all of me, every part of me. My mind, my heart, my will, my emotions, my affection and allegiance, my attention, my love and loyalty. You want all of me and I can't give it to you in and of myself. So I'm going to cast myself on your grace to enable me to stand before you tomorrow and say, God, here is my life. Do with me as you will. Because I want to please your heart. James says, that's how you go about that's how you go about giving yourself to the one who yearns jealously for you by recognizing you can't do it he can enable you to do it and casting yourself on his grace what would it look like if God raised up a people here what would it look like if God raised up a church in Rockwall County, in Royce City, Texas, of people whose hearts, minds, souls, and strength by His grace were offered up to Him Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and yes, Sunday as well. So that this husband that we have who yearns jealously for us 
will be the one that we're giving ourselves to. What might he do in this community? Not for our sakes, but for his. I'm not sure what it would look like, but I'd love to see it. Let's pray together. Father, we come today humbled by the reality that we cannot achieve the level of affection that you desire from us, the level of allegiance and attention that you desire from us apart from your grace. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that underneath all the animosity that we might experience on the surface and horizontal relationships ultimately is rooted in an adulterous relationship with you in which we have taken good things and made them into ultimate things. And that we're trying to leverage you to get what our hearts really long for. And so whenever that happens, God, and we don't receive it, it creates all kinds of disputes and quarrels in our lives. Father, I pray this morning we would cast ourselves on your mercy and upon your grace to renew and restore us we would find your mercies to be new this morning, today and in this moment, that we would yield ourselves to you. That we would stop trying to use you, but we would love you. Father, I pray that in my life, and I pray that in the lives of the men and women who are gathered in this room this morning. I pray that there be teenagers this morning who would offer their heart, soul, mind, and strength to you because you have pledged yourself to them in covenant. Father, I pray that there would be young adults in this room this morning who would offer heart, soul, mind, and strength to you because you have pledged yourself to them in covenant and you are jealous for their affection. I pray there be single adults and married adults in this room this morning who would offer all of their life to you because you have loved them. You have given your son to them. You have shown the extent to which you would go to have them as your bride. And I pray that that truth would move beyond just an intellectual ascent. And I pray that it would descend upon our hearts. And it would awaken us. It would awaken us from slumber. It would awaken us from sleep. It would awaken us from the arms and wrestle us from the arms of other lovers. Who cannot satisfy in the way that you're able to satisfy. Who cannot grant security in the way that you're able to make us secure. And that, Father, through this church, that you would leave an indelible, indelible impression upon this community of your love and grace. So that we would not be known as a people who fight and quarrel because we don't get what we really want, but a people who mend and a people who are redemptive agents 
in this city because we have everything that we could need. I pray this in Jesus' name.